0: Brought to you by the all-new 2014 Toyota Corolla. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Jerry's here, of course. And uh, this is Stuff You Should Know. Welcome, friends. Yeah. Oh, before we get started, mm-hmm. I want to do a little plug. We want to do a little plug for Coed, the uh, Cooperative for Education,
0: our friends in Guatemala, of course. Yeah, if you uh, by way of Cincinnati,
1: <laughs> right? Um, it, you, if you haven't heard him, you want to go listen to our Guatemala adventure parts one and two. Mm-hmm. Jerry gives a big speech in the second one; it's very dramatic, yeah, uh, and moving. Um, and basically, Coed is a uh, group that is dedicated to ending poverty in Guatemala. By basically uh, funding them and their schooling.
0: Yes, through education.
1: Yes, through a textbook and then computer program mm-hmm. where uh, your donations go to uh, buy textbooks that are rented by the families. And that rental money goes into escrow accounts. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when the textbooks wear out... They can buy new ones they in call perpetuity. That the self-sustaining program. That's exactly right. And I think the textbook rental, is something like two dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did a lot of surveys to find out what the average family in these uh, in living in the conditions that they live in can afford. Yeah, and uh, they've got it down pretty much to science. Yeah, they have another thing, Chuckers, um, that's their uh, scholarship and youth development program. And it takes it uh, uh, several steps further, where certain kids who are showing a lot of potential, um, they get their tuition paid for. There's programs, uh, additional programs that are all paid for through this scholarship program. And so Coed has uh, developed this program. They're reaching out to some of you should know listeners who have apparently shown up in force to help Coed ever since the, the Guatemalan Adventure episodes.
0: Yeah, they've had people go on tours uh, with Jerry even. Mm hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's really neat. Like, it, it's been a, a just a great friendship over yeah. the past few years.
1: It has been. Um, so you can go to, um, slash help kids and become a uh, scholarship sponsor. Um, and there's two levels of, uh, sponsorship there is, uh, the diploma sponsor, right? Yeah, seventy bucks a month. Yeah. And then the honor roll sponsor. Half. 35 bucks a month.
0: Both yeah. very valuable.
1: And that is taking a kid literally as directly as you can without physically going down there and picking them up. <laughs> yeah. But lifting a kid out of, you know, like abject poverty. Yeah. And giving them the, the uh, chance for a real quality education.
0: Yeah. I mean, we've seen them in, in action and uh, your money's going to like a great place they, they use it well.
1: Uh and we mentioned this before in another episode and um as a result some stuff you should know listeners uh became scholarship um donors. That's right. Who are they? Well, we've pledged to like
0: read these names.
1: Yeah, anybody who who uh goes on and becomes a scholarship sponsor with Coed and agrees to uh let us say their name if you want. Um, we are reading your names out in thank you on the podcast. So here's the first
0: batch. That's right. Uh, thank you, Andy Ho. Uh, that is A N D I E, mm-hmm. not Y. Right. Um, thank you to Bendik, Baksaas. Nice. Thank you to Aaron Nice, or Nice. I I don't know. N I E S. Nice. Nice. Let's say both. <laughs> we did. Thank you to Ian Murray for having a normal name. <laughs> Thank you to Jordan Weicker. Uh You want to read the last three?
1: Sure. Thanks to Katie Apple,
0: or Appel. Appel.
1: <laughs> uh, and
0: Thanks to Kelly Andrews, and uh, thanks to Zoya Erdvig. That's right. And it sounds like we have people from all over the world helping and chipping in, uh, judging from these names, so that's really great.
1: Yeah, and a name that you'll probably recognize because uh, he's all over social, our social stuff, Caleb Weeks. Oh, Yeah. Caleb Weeks super volunteered, and uh, he is a a programmer, and he basically helped take the co-ed website into the 21st century by leaps and bounds um, by volunteering as a programmer.
0: Yeah, you can always get in touch with them if you don't have any dough but you've got some other skill. Like, they'll take help in all kinds of ways, web programming and video work and uh, Jerry's done some videography work for him. I've done some yeah. voiceover stuff for him. It's just, it's
1: a, it's a real live, uh, charitable organization. Agreed. Yeah. Um, so, go help them. That's, uh, www.cooperativeforeducation.org slash help kids and, uh, check it out. See what you think.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah, that was a good one though. We, we like to talk about co-ed every now and then because there's good folks. Sure. So now we can talk about, Sort of a related-ish topic. I guess it is. You know? It's down there. I recognized a couple of these words. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, well, we'll get to it. But there was one of them. It's actually a town in Guatemala, I think. Which one? Uh Ketch- Ketchical? Yeah, that sounds familiar. That's a language. It's a language, Jerry says. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember when I was in Guatemala hearing that. Right. Yeah. So
1: we're talking
0: uh, Inca. Yeah, Pretty. Uh, this is a Josh Clark jam. It
1: was. This was back when I was like starry eyed over anything that had anything to do with fourteen
0: ninety one. I know, man. You wrote a series of Charles Mann related articles. Yeah, and if the, for those of you who don't know, that is Josh's favorite book. We've talked about it um, a lot on the show. And I'm still gonna read it one day. I just need to do it. It's great. You know? You will not be disappointed. I feel like if I read it now, they would be like, oh, I know that part. I know that
1: part. You, I'm sure you will. You'll, yeah. you'll recognize a lot of it, but it's so much more fleshed out. You got your stank all over that book. <laughs> <laughs> 1493 isn't bad either. Uh, oh, the, the sequel? Yeah.
0: Mannier? It's, uh, it's mannish. Mannish. You can t- definitely tell man wrote it for sure. So we're talking about the Inca people who, um, They had a habit uh, – not a habit. They had a a practice (laughs) called – I can't quit. Yeah. They had a practice in their culture of child sacrifice. Right. Which sounds horrific, and based in our modern-day culture, it is, but we've long pointed out the tenets of uh, cultural relativism. I would like to say
1: that I officially renounce cultural relativism on the whole. Oh, really? Yeah. I have since changed my viewpoint. I think there are – absolutes that are universal or should be and that a culture can be judged as...
0: Barbaric, perhaps. Yeah,
1: for certain practices.
0: Yeah, cultural rel- relativism, I know we've explained it before, but that's basically you can't look back at some old culture that did these things and judge it by today's standards right. and say, you know, but...
1: It's a foundation of anthropology. You couldn't yeah, have anthropology used to really, uh, without cultural uh, relativism. This. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, as an absolute, like, there's... You, there was nothing that you could do that was out of bounds as a culture because you could only judge a culture by its own standards. Therefore, everything is self-justified, right?
0: I still believe it to a certain degree, but yeah. I think in certain cases maybe I could say uh, – because people can make the argument for a lot of things being, oh, no, that's just the culture of things.
1: Right. You now, know? I'm exactly where you are. I would say 98 to 99% of things – are bound by cultural relativism, yeah, but I do think there are a handful of things, and I, I don't even know if I have them fully explored yet, but I think there's a handful of things that are just you just shouldn't do, and if you do it, then you' there's you're not as great as cultures that don't do that.
0: yeah, because you know what we had a um, we had a fan issue with us on the Facebook wall when we I posted about the posthumous pardoning of Alan Turing the uh, code breaker and inventor of the Turing test, Mm the scientist in England Mm -hmm. that was homosexual and chemically castrated. And England recently um, pardoned him posthumously. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty cool. And I posted about it. And this one guy was like, well, you know, back then they, they were doing the best they can. They were trying to help him out, you know, because they thought being gay was a disease. And I was like, listen, man, you can't just sweep it under the rug by saying this is just how things were. So I think that's sort of an instance where I don't believe in it. Yeah. Even though it wasn't an ancient thing, it was like the 1950s. Sure. Uh, but I guess, you know, it was a different time and a different culture. Yeah. So I guess I'm with you then. Yeah. Cool. There's a long-winded way of saying that. Cool. I, I liked the long-winded way. <laughs> so we're on the same page. So how do you feel about child sacrifice in the Incan culture?
1: Um, the weird thing is, is I, I don't, in this particular instance, I, I do think it's bound by cultural relativism. I think
0: so too, because it was so long ago. It was also so do
1: with it. extremely well thought out. Yeah. It was venerated. It wasn't, um, brutal. Right. Wow. Well, I mean, it depends. So well, let's, <laughs> let's talk about this. Well, how about this? It doesn't matter what I think of it. That's true. I think we'll leave it to each listener to decide what they right. think of ink and child sacrifice. First of all, ink and child sacrifice was used very uncommonly in cases of really dire circumstances uh-huh. where they really had irked the gods uh-huh. and needed to appease them or on uh, a very special symbolic occasion. For the most part, the, um, the, it was guinea pigs that were offered as blood sacrifice by oh, the, really? Inca. yeah. So children and then sometimes women were very infrequently sacrificed,
0: but of course never the men.
1: Well, well yeah. Um, when they were, however, uh, they, there was an elaborate ritual and process that was followed, and the kids were basically like demigods. Right. For being offered up by their parents.
0: Yeah, you point out, it's not that they didn't, um, like, they had any animosity toward kids at all. They were actually revered, and that's why it was such, like, the ultimate sacrifice, because kids were so revered.
1: Right. Well, it's kind of like, we value our children. Yeah. We're gonna kill one of them.
0: That's how much we want to appease you. Right.
1: That's how much we need these potato crops to survive.
0: That's right. So, um, there, there was a big ceremony. They built a chamber. They gave the kid a little corn alcohol to, you know, soothe them, I guess.
1: Yeah, and it stave off fear.
0: Um, you said that they, uh, knocked him on the head with a cushioned blow to knock them out.
1: Yeah, which I imagine was probably done while they were, like, not really paying attention.
0: <laughs> um,. But the point is they, they wanted to prevent suffering as much as possible, so at least they would be unconscious. Right. But they think they died of uh, exposure, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they drove a stake through their heart or anything like that. They're right. They just kind of leave them at the top of the highest point. And
1: they, they uh, went out of their way to, to make sure the children didn't feel any fear or as little fear as possible. Um, and I think for those reasons, because it was infrequent, because they tried to make the child comfortable. Yeah. And not fearful. Yeah. Um, because it was a relatively painless death. Um, I, I think that it kind of, uh, I don't know. It falls within cultural relativism for me. F- the, the thing that, um, I do take it issue with was that the parents who offered up their kid. Right. wasn't the kid's decision. Well, of course not. They immediately gained higher status in the society. So I think sure that it was that- a that's, great honor, you know? It, it was, but it was a way to gain status. Oh. Uh, you know what I mean? Gotcha. Um, so I think that it was, uh, in that respect, you can really kind of cast a shadow upon it, too. Yeah. Want, that and the fact yeah. that children died to get potato crops to grow.
0: Yeah, it wasn't a cute thing. It's not like Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan jumping in the volcano to appease the Wolfoni Woods. great movie. Yeah. So they must have thought that things were working because the Incas were like a super successful people. Yeah, very quickly, too. Like a million a million people. That's a lot of people back then in the span of how many years?
1: Just a couple of centuries. Yeah.
0: A couple hundred years, a million people back then. thats You're doing pretty well. Yeah. And you're it, spreading far and wide.
1: Right. And it wasn't like a couple of Inca, the initial Inca got together and just had a million offspring. Right. The Inca very much came out of nowhere as a civilization and just dominated everybody else who was living as loose tribes, unconnected tribes. In the Andes at the time,
0: yeah, they were they were smart. They were technologi- uh, technologically, <laughs> wow, technologically advanced. They were. Um, they
1: they. So the Andes are a very inhospitable place. There, it's an arid climate, and it's really high up.
0: Yeah, I mean, just surviving there is is something else. Much less thriving. Yeah, and getting crops to grow. Well, Inca
1: figured out irrigation techniques. They figured out terraced farming. And we have the potato, uh, peanuts, quinoa, 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 um, types of squash, peppers, and beans. All of thank, we have uh, the Inca to thank oh, for really? all of those. Yes.
0: Oh, I love quinoa.
1: Well, thank the Inca. Thank you, Inca. Or at the very <laughs> least, thank the people of the Andes that the Inca eventually came to subjugate. Oh, okay. Well, that doesn't seem as heartfelt. <laughs> and um but the um, but the inca technology was very advanced
0: yeah super advanced um they had a very uh strictly rigidly defined class system starting at the top of course with uh the royals and then on the way down all the way down to you know the workers and the laborers and the commoners and the military
1: right and the inca royal line was perpetuated incestuously a uh inca ruler would marry his blood sister, full-blood sister. Grace. And then they would have offspring. And those offspring would be the Inca. So you can imagine there were some yeah. strange Inca that emerged over time. Yeah. What's staggering is that there were Inca that were incredibly smart sure. and capable. Um, st- yes, and who built this civilization um, through an incestuous line because it really yeah. was protected <laughs> like that. Um, and then the Inca ruler would also have dozens of other wives that he wasn't related to. And then from those offspring would be the the second tier of society, the yeah. highest um, rulers, bureaucrats, advisors.
0: I bet there were some incestuous kids, too, that you don't hear about as much either, that were just sort of, you know, hidden away. I'm sure. You know what I'm saying? Isn't that bizarre, though? I mean... I know. If you're basing your... your uh, like royal family on incest, you're you're already at a at a you know negative, right? I would think. But
1: but the Inca are far from the only the only group to come up with this idea sure. of protecting the royal bloodline by only um, producing offspring with that pure blood. Man, crazy world,
0: crazy. Um, so they were big time uh, expansionists. They liked to spread out to the suburbs and the exurbs, and uh, it. it Ended up being a problem, which we'll get to, but they were spread far and wide geographically, which can be trouble eventually, as we'll see. Um, sometimes they were crushing people with their military forces. Sometimes they were tempting people with, uh, like, Hey, look, we have roads. We have, uh, we have technology. We have farming systems and irrigation that you're going to like thrive with. Right. The,
1: the nobles of these, the ones that they kind of colluded with. Uh, those groups would become part of that second tier aristocracy yeah. as well. So there was a, it was either might, persuading them with technology, like you said, or saying, "Hey, you got a pretty nice spot over here if you come." Right. Bring your people under Inca
0: rule. So this also, it sounds great when you're getting all these different tribes, these hundreds of tribes, together under one more powerful group. But again, just like spreading out far and wide, that would also eventually be one little knock against them in their eventual downfall. Because when you've got people that were gathered together like that, they're still ultimately uh, fractured in a way. Right, right. But
1: the Inca took uh, great pains to get around this. And they used a tactic that Stalin would later use. You take people from the conquered lands Uh and move some of them over here. And then you do the exact opposite with some people from the other uh, conquered land. And what you do is you rule through dilution, cultural dilution.
0: So you're mixing up the the tribes, basically? Exactly. Uh You're
1: breaking up families. You're breaking up villages. You're breaking up tribes. Yeah, that makes sense. Shuffling them all together and um, giving them all a common language and a common ruler. And through that, you're forcing a new cultural identity on them. That's what the Inca did. That's how they were able to... I guess, gain a population in a, a territory as yeah. big as they did in just a couple of centuries. Like
0: 2,500 miles That's long? That was like their linear distribution?
1: Linear Yeah, from Ecuador to Chile. That's crazy. There's 350,000 square mile territory after just a couple hundred years of putting it together.
0: Yeah, but again, you're setting yourself up for problems back then. You know, They didn't have telegraphs. They had runners. They did. And eventually, the runners are... Even it like t- at 250 miles a day. Okay, so I need to correct
1: myself. And that's I, not right, is it?
0: I already. <laughs> I didn't think it was. I already emailed uh, Tracy
1: Wilson uh-huh. of Stuff You Missed in History Class, who handles um, changes to articles, uh, and said I need to change this. It says in the article, or originally said that these runners, highly trained runners, yeah. that would um, deliver communications throughout the the kingdom of the Inca, could cover 250 miles in a day. I thought that was wrong. It is wrong. That's okay. 400 kilometers in a day. Um, it's absolutely wrong. Uh, instead, they would use a relay system sure. of runners that could cover 250 miles in a day.
0: Oh, well, you didn't um,
1: – well. It made it sound like each runner could yeah, yeah. cover 250 miles, and I was like – I see what you mean. Wait, that doesn't sound right. So I specified a okay. relay –
0: using a relay system. I kind of assumed that. Because oh, okay. nobody can run that much in a day. Right. Well, I'm kind of dumb. Except for scump. Um <laughs> So my point was, though, even with those runners covering that distance, when you're that spread out, it's eventually going to lead to fracturing and some problems and communication and just a breakdown of the society.
1: Right. Um And also, Chuck, I don't know if you mentioned or not, they didn't have the wheel.
0: Well, yeah. They, they had,
1: had one of the most t- highly advanced civilizations. Um to ever pop up in the Americas, and they they didn't have the wheel. That's crazy. And it's not like the wheel wasn't in existence. They were just an isolated group. Like, the, we're talking around the, um, the 13th century to the 16th century. The Incas were around. Yeah. And um, the height of their power was in the mid-13th century under a uh, ruler named uh, Pachacuti, who has a great name. <laughs> and uh, Pachacuti was the one for whom Machu Picchu was built as a, a royal estate.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. I didn't know that yeah uh but since the go- i mean the government was a really big factor because of the way the class system was built and so rigid it was a uh, uh people that was that were largely dependent on the government right because they had the smarts and people liked you know having bountiful crops and and gold, well, they probably didn't have much gold well, there's definite trade they had plenty of gold, Well, no, not the commoners, you know, well, no,
1: no, but there was a definite trade off it was like you were under Inca rule now, but you also have. As many potatoes as you need. Right. Um, you got great roads. Your family's going to not die young, probably. Yeah, corn liquor, evidently. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, yes. yes, there was a very strong bureaucracy. So India, modern-day India, is a very bureaucratic state. And there is apparently 1,662 government workers for every 100,000 people in India. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. In uh, Under Inca rule, there were um, – Thirteen hundred and thirty-one government officials for every ten thousand people. Wow, that's an, a staggering bureaucracy. But that's how they ran this thing. Yeah, so well, this huge um, system was run through bureaucrats.
0: That's right, up to a point. Of course, we all know it's you know bad things are coming our way. Yeah, because of the title of the podcast, are coming their way, uh, and in the fifteenth century. Uh, they had a big boom in uh, expansion and basically it became just a little too unwieldy and chaotic they were spread too far and wide you know when you whenever you're that far apart and have that many different tribes that make up your people you're gonna have insurgencies and rebels right that they quashed pretty you know did a pretty good job of quashing those for many years mm-hmm. but um it was just too big and too spread out and uh, to, to maintain basically cool. at that time period.
1: The, well, I guess probably the the real crippling blow came in 1525 when uh, Huayna Capac, Huayna Capac. He was the Inca ruler. He was a very strong ruler. Um he died. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately within just a few days of him his successor died. So, oh okay. I was going
0: to say why didn't he name a successor? He did and that he successor
1: did. died. I also emailed Tracy about okay. that too. <laughs> But, yeah, he, um, he, he named a successor and they both died within a couple of days of one another, um, which left a power vacuum. And there were two sons that moved to fill it and a seven year civil war ensued that really fractured Incan society.
0: Yeah, that was, uh, Atahualpa and, uh, Huscar. Yeah. Which uh, I think is Incan for Oscar.
1: I think so too. <laughs> uh, it's like George and Oscar Bluth. That's right. <laughs> uh, and th- there was a se- seven year civil war civil war of any type is going to, you know, fracture society. A seven-year one's yeah. real bad, especially when there's nobody in control during the time, right? That's right. Um the uh I guess Husqvar ultimately lost. Uh he was executed by his brother Atualpa. Yeah. Um in 1532, but the damage was done after Atualpa consolidated power, Incan society was on very shaky ground already.
0: Yeah, the cracks were showing. And uh, right about that time, a uh, Spanish uh, conqueror named Francisco Pizarro arrived, and um, he didn't have a lot of dudes with him. He had less than 200 men. Yeah. And we will tell you the story of just how those 168 men, says Charles Mann, took over this vast empire. And reason number one is what we just said. He got there at the right time. Mm-hmm. They were weakened. They were fractured. The cracks were showing. Uh, Civil war had broken out. So it was a good time to go in and do a little conquering.
1: Right, and he followed in the footsteps of uh, Cortez, Hernan Cortez. Cortes. Who? Uh, That's how you have to say it. I think. Right. Who conquered the uh, Mesoamerican Aztec civilization, the Triple Alliance? Right.
0: Yeah. He uh, he went to South America from Cuba, um, as as uh, you know, under the Spanish flag, and. Even though uh, Diego Velasquez was the governor of Cuba, he was he didn't uh, he didn't want him going down there. But he did such a good job, Cortes did, and came back with a lot of gold. And uh, King Charles V said, "You know what? You conquered the Aztecs. You brought me a bunch of wealth. You are actually okay in my book." And Pizzato saw this and was like, "Hey, I want to get my hands on some wealth. I feel like I'm a conqueror." Yeah. I'm a conquistador. So uh, Pizzotto was a European, and um, because he was European, he had a, a very helpful tool, and this is the number two thing that helped them top of the Incas. Uh-huh. It's called a gun. Yeah, it was a big one. Very big one. Um The, the, the boomstick. Yeah,
1: because the, uh, on top of the very obvious um, killing power that sure. the gun provided. Big advantage. It was also, it provided a huge psychological advantage, too, because the Inca, like the Aztecs, I'd never seen anything like that before, and we're very, very scared of it. That's right. Um, so they're messed up in the head, right? So you've got you've got superior firepower. Mm-hmm. You have uh, the um, tactic of divide and conquer that Cortez used, Pizarro used as well. He identified groups that were um, under Incan rule, but were maybe the most rebellious, yeah. the ones who were most opposed to Incan rule. Identified them and colluded with them to turn them against the Incan power structure, the this, this central core of it.
0: Yeah. Uh, the other thing that helped them, too, when he arrived, when Pizzaro arrived, they thought that he was uh, the creator god, uh, Vera Trocha and they thought the same thing about Cortes, actually. They thought he was Quetzal, which Jerry says is a language, <laughs> but it was a similar thing. They thought these guys were returning gods or creator gods, so immediately they kind of revered them and trusted them. And gave them, you know, they had confidence in them, which was a big mistake. Right. Um, Jerry's talking about catch a call. That's the language, right? That's a Mayan language. Yeah, but I think it's spelled the same. No, I don't think so. Catch a Yeah. Okay. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> so when Pizzato gets there, he's got this trust. They think he's a returning god. And what does he do with it? He well, he captures their ruler. Yeah,
1: he captured Altu who had just just executed his brother and consolidated power, and all of a sudden. Pizarro shows up. Like, I fight for seven years, (laughs) finally (laughs) capture my brother, execute him. I'm the Inca now. Right. And Pizarro shows up with his boomsticks. That's right. So I think he's a god, and I'll go see what he has to say. And, oh, he's holding me ransom. He's asking for a room full of gold. No problem. I'll give it to him, and he'll let me go, but he doesn't. Pizarro hangs on to Alto Alpa.
0: That's
1: right. Ultimately um, finds that he's not able to command the Inca through Alto Alpa. Yeah, he so, was sort
0: of a puppet for a little while.
1: Right. So he uh, executes him. Pizarro has him strangled and then beheaded. Yep, that'll do it. It will. So you still need an Inca ruler if you're going to rule the Inca because, again, Pizarro only has about 168 guys with him. Um, so he sets up another guy, uh, another Inca um who's strictly a puppet ruler.
0: Yeah, Manco Cupac the 2nd. Yes. He, and uh he puts him in the throne. He was the son of Huana Cupac. Right, of course.
1: So uh Manco rules for a little bit, but he also he notices some cracks in the Spanish power structure. Yeah. Um, some new Spaniards have arrived. They're not the original 168 conquistadors. These are some new guys, maybe some carpetbaggers, you could call them. Uh-huh. And they're not entirely happy with Pizarro and his rule. So, uh, Manco notices a, a fracture among the Spaniards, works it to his advantage, and eventually escapes, uh, Lima, which is the new capital city of the Inca kingdom under Spanish rule. Right. And goes off and founds his own city. Which is successful for a little while.
0: So how, how many years is this? 36. Okay. So it's a slow takeover. It wasn't, you know, they didn't get off the ship with 168 guys and. Oh, no, no, they
1: did. No, no, no,
0: but in like, assume control of of the.
1: Yeah. I'm sorry. I misspoke with, with, within a year. Okay. So 1532, they land Mm -hmm. by 1536. They've already killed Altawalpa, uh, installed Manco the, the, uh, second as the puppet. Ruler, So they were essentially in power at that point. Oh, totally. Okay. And then by 1536, Manco flees and founds a rival Incan state. Right. Now that Incan state survived for 36 years. Okay. And by 1572, the Spanish were very tired of all of the assaults and the sieges on Lima.
0: Sure, there were insurgencies going on.
1: And they said, you know what, we're just going to get rid of this rival um, Inca state, Vilcabamba, um, headed by Manco for a little while until, um, until the end. The last Inca was named Tupac Amaru. Tupac? Seriously. Nice. And the Inca, when they stormed, uh, or the, uh, the Spaniards, when they stormed Vilcabamba, they, uh, captured Tupac Amaru and beheaded him and effectively with that stroke ended Inca civilization forever. And they said, no, he's just a hologram. <laughs> we got the wrong guy.
0: Right, yeah. Uh, okay, so it was a bit of a uh, – I, I get it now. That, 30, it was – six years. That makes sense.
1: That was all – I I really just condensed things into a very brief sketch, and it needed more fleshing out. Maybe I'll go back and flesh it out. If not – Hey, if, don't beat yourself if, I, up. if I don't, you should go um, read uh, the account. Actually, is a really great – brief account of the downfall of the Inca from the uh, Microsoft Encarta encyclopedia, they had something good in there.
0: Yeah, that's what you sent me. Yeah. That's good stuff. So they also got a little bit more help because even with all these things going on, it's still less than 200 men, you know, like even with the cracks and even with the collusion and even with the guns and everything going on, it's still less than 200 dudes. And it was a population of a million, so they needed a little bit of help from Europe's old friend, smallpox. Yeah, this is what really led to the
1: set the stage for the Inca downfall at the hands of 168 conquistadors. They did not know about smallpox. They had no immunities against smallpox. Like right, because the Spaniards they did. They didn't live around livestock like the Spaniards did. They had alpacas and guinea pigs. But apparently they never carried smallpox. It's an old world disease that was introduced to the new world and it ravaged it. That's right. That's what they believe killed Huena Kupak and his name's successor, which left the power vacuum in the Civil War. Yeah. Um, they think it killed a lot of Incans who may have otherwise revolted against the Spaniards and fought them.
0: And they inadvertently brought smallpox with them. Yeah. Right. It wasn't like uh, early chemical warfare or anything like that.
1: No, they had no idea about the existence of smallpox until they saw what was going on and and became aware of smallpox and that the native populations had no defenses against it. Then, maybe in the late 18th, early 19th century, Europeans started using it as biological warfare. Yeah, we covered that in something, I remember. Tainted blankets to Native Americans and things like that. Jeez. Yeah, because, I mean, once it got introduced, it just ravaged the Americas. Just... Ravaged it. You can't even say decimated because we'll get too many emails for misusing it. <laughs> yeah. But apparently, it just, yeah. somewhere between ninety and ninety-five percent of the indigenous populations of America, which by some estimates was at a hundred million, by the 1490s, yeah. a fifth of the world population, ninety to ninety-five percent of that was wiped out within a hundred and thirty
0: years of Columbus's arrival in the Indies. And that is how one hundred and sixty-eight men can take over such a vast. Population. That's right. As Paul Harvey would say, that's the end of the story. <laughs> <laughs> or is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, man, you're like, no, 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 I got one more thing. No, I don't. That's it. <laughs> Paul Harvey comes in and punches you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, Chuck. Um, for those of you that don't know, Paul Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who are under age 60? Uh, yeah, probably. No, look him up. I'm not even going to tell you. Okay. Who's, who is this Paul Harvey? Yeah, look them up. Okay.
1: And in the meantime, while you're looking things up, look up the uh, this article I wrote. Hopefully, it'll be updated by the time this episode comes out. Um, just type in conquistadors, C-O-N-Q-U-I-S-T-A-D-O-R-S in the search bar at howstuffworks.com, and it will bring it up. Since I said search bar, it's time for a message break. And now it's time for listener mail.
0: Yeah, and i got to say, I really uh, love our uh, jingle. Yeah, it's good. It was a great gift. Agreed. Uh, All right, so this is uh, from a former quartermaster um, in the Coast Guard who sort of bridged the gap between sextants and GPS. So he was around, you know, he saw both worlds. Wow. It's very interesting.
1: Yeah, that's quite a transition.
0: All right, guys, great podcast. I was a quartermaster in the U.S. Coast Guard and worked with charts and navigation My last duty station was aboard the buoy Tender U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Sundew in Duluth, Minnesota, from 1995 to 1998. Our area of responsibility was Lake Superior, and I feel uh, fortunate to have participated in the transition from positioning buoys using sextants to using GPS. GPS was new at the time, and because there was a built-in error to the signal, it had to be removed by a differential military system. Few civilian applications were using it at the time. GPS unit that we had only provided a latitude uh, latitude and longitude, which we then plotted on a chart to get our position. Uh, Because our charts were using old datum, um, they were inaccurate, and in some instances the GPS coordinates had us driving the ship over land. Um, Although GPS was quicker, and in most cases more accurate than sextants, we didn't fully trust it yet, so we had to plot out the position of each buoy with sextants and the GPS to compare the two. Uh, after a couple of more years comparing the two, and after the charts were updated with a more accurate datum, we eventually switched to all GPS positioning.
1: Do you remember that pavement album? What is it? Westing by Musket and Sextant. Yep.
0: B sides, great one. Is it? Yeah. Love that album. And every time I hear the word sextant, I think about it. Yeah, me too. Uh, when navigating in the Great Lakes, we use radar and bearings to fixed objects on land to chart our position, and use GPS coordinates alongside uh, the traditional methods of navigation as a check. Uh, GPS became very valuable to navigating, and software improved uh, to plot the position on an electronic chart. Even back then, I could see all the writing on the wall and knew the Coast Guard would probably replace quartermasters with GPS units in the future. Uh, in two thousand and three, the Coast Guard stopped training quartermasters. And soon after, the existing quartermasters were offered different positions within the Coast Guard, and they smashed all the sextants. <laughs>
1: yeah. Now we can all go out there and say that we learned today what a quartermaster does. Yeah. Or did they didn't smash the sextants, by the way?
0: No. Um, navigating by means of sextant, radar, and visual bearings is becoming a dying art. Uh, but I am proud to have been proficient in navigation and feel fortunate to have experienced the transition from old to new, old school to new. Fair winds and following seas, Jared Parks, former quartermaster second class US Coast Guard, 1990 to 1998. Nice. And well, by the way, I should mention you got a lot of flack for not knowing what orienteering was. Orienting <laughs> for Maps podcast.
1: Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. And I,
0: and, flack I all kinds. Yeah, and I posted the uh, the brown map too. I don't know if you saw it. Uh, I need that because
1: everybody on Twitter is asking. Oh, okay. I'll and like, yeah, please do. Right now. Yeah, thank you.
0: I will tweet that directly. So thanks to Jared for that email.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jared. Way to make yourself obsolete. <laughs> uh, if you have made yourself obsolete in some way um, or have contributed to the obsolescence of uh, anything, that's pretty interesting stuff. Great. Obsolescence, right? Sure. Yeah, I think that's right. Orienting. <laughs> Uh, we want to hear about it. You can send us a tweet to uh, SYSK Podcast. That's our Twitter handle. Uh, you can join us on Facebook.com. That's Facebook.com slash StuffYouShouldKnow. Uh, you can send us an email to StuffPodcast at Discovery.com. And you can join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Brought to you by the all-new 2014 Toyota Corolla.